We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hi everyone, I'm Priscilla and I'm Elise. Welcome to Novel Feelings, where we discuss representations of mental health issues in fiction novels. Before we get started, a couple of quick disclaimers. So please remember that we are trained psychologists, but this podcast should not be taken as therapeutic advice. We also acknowledge that we're speaking today as psychologists and book lovers, not necessarily as people with lived experiences of the issues that we're covering today in this book. So we think it's important to acknowledge that our voices are limited this way. Stay tuned at the end of this episode where we'll link to some more information about these issues, including writing from people with lived experience. Today, we are reviewing Cry Blue Murder by Kim Kane and Marion Roberts. So, just a summary about the story. Celia and Alice share everything. Their secrets, hopes, and the increasing horror that a killer is on the loose and abducting schoolgirls just like them. Three bodies have been found each shrouded in hand-woven fabric. From within the depths of a police investigation, clues are starting to emerge. But as Alice and Celia discover the truth, danger is closer than anyone knows. Who can you trust at a time like this? Such an intriguing synopsis, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll just quickly jump into the biography about the, the two authors of this book. So first of all, we have Kim Kane. So Kim Kane is an award-winning Australian author who writes for children and teenagers. Her books include the CBCA shortlisted picture book Family Forest and her time slip children's novel When the Lyrebird Calls. And we also have Marion Roberts, who is a creative writer residing in Melbourne. She has a master's in creative writing from the University of Melbourne, and her first book, Sunny Side Up, was published in 2008. Cry Blue Murder is her third novel. And before we go too far in, we will just note that we are a spoiler podcast, so there will be spoilers about Cry Blue Murder. And just a, a bit of a hint that there is a twist in this book that is right at the end that we will be talking about <laughs> up front as well. So... Please keep that in yes. mind before you continue <laughs> listening. We chose this book because it was recommended to us and we are aware that it is being studied in some schools at the moment. It's always interesting to reflect back on what's being studied in English and literature classes at the moment. So this would be kind of, a, yeah. I think, a pretty cool book to be studying um, if I were in high school. I think I would have enjoyed studying this one. Yeah. What did you study in high school? A lot of books. I'm trying to remember the specifics. Um, classic stories like we did Jane Eyre, we did Romeo and Juliet. The English class I was in did Hamlet, but then there were a lot of kind of smaller Australian novels as well. <laughs> what about you? I went to school in Indonesia, so we didn't do English literature. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> we did an Indonesian novel, I think, at one stage and some poetry. In high school, I read English books for fun. I, yeah, wish I could say that I learnt um, that I was reading, because uh, I was studying French in high school, I wish I could say, like, oh, yeah, I, I was reading French literature for fun, but no, I was not that advanced by any means. <laughs> <laughs> so very, very impressed. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So we are covering a few different topics today, including the impact of trauma and vicarious trauma, grief and anxiety response to crime in the community, a little bit about autism spectrum disorder, mm -hmm. and 
trigger warnings for traumatic events in the book include descriptions of dead bodies and murders, drowning, kidnapping, stalking, grooming, slut shaming, definitely, and mm-hmm. fat phobia as well. So lots of unpleasant things. Yeah, I don't know how in detail we'll go about some of this stuff today, but um, it's definitely in the book, even if we don't end up talking about it. So just keep that in mind mm. as you listen. Okay, shall we start our detailed recap and review? Let's go for it. Let's dive into what this story is all about. Celia Beasley and Alice King first start emailing each other when they try to help with a vigil for Hallie Night. Hallie a 15-year-old girl, has recently gone missing. This is following a trend of sort where other girls had gone missing before, all labeled victims of the cocoon killer. Alice tells Celia that she attends boarding school at Ladywell Convent in Mildura. Celia tells Alice that she has recently moved to Ashbourne, a girl's secondary school. They bond over their shared fear and disbelief about what's happened to Hallie and begin sharing stories about their families. Mm. Mm. So, big spoiler that we will mention up front (laughs) is that right at the end of the book, we learn that one of the two main characters, Alice, is not real. These two 15-year-old schoolgirls that have um, what might seem to be quite a genuine, uh, heartfelt email exchange that happens throughout the book, well, one of them is real and one of them is implied to actually be the cocoon killer, if not the cocoon killer himself, mm. but some kind of um, accomplice or somebody who's affiliated with murders in some way. We don't actually learn the details about that at all. But yes, Alice, not real. I just want to note that you should notice that their names are anagrams of each other. Yeah, something you picked up on right at the start, didn't you? Like, oh, this is interesting. I didn't notice at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at it and I was like, oh, they might sp- is this because they're best friends and their names are practically the same? <laughs> but no, that's not it at all. <laughs> anyway, so we learn that Celia is struggling with loneliness and isolation, as well as the fear from the kidnapping. Celia describes her family to Alice. So her dad is currently struggling with his business and is described to be quite withdrawn from his family. Her mum is a former model and encouraging Celia to enter the industry, to put it politely. (laughs) Celia is the second of three sisters. Uh, So Jamie is the oldest in year 11 and she's a performer and big into theatre. She also has a younger sister, Cleo, who Celia describes as being quite unusual. So she says... There's a real gap between what she thinks and how she gets it out of her mouth, so she mainly says nothing, elective mutism. When she speaks, it sounds like a grinding of a cement mixer. Celia tells Alice that Cleo's proper diagnoses are developmental apraxia of speech and low-spectrum autism. Uh, even though Cleo's, um, Cleo's not really a main character in the story and her autism diagnosis isn't super relevant, uh, this definitely struck us as being something that maybe we should be a little bit nitpicky about. So we'll just uh, <laughs> diverge from the main story for a second to talk a little bit more about um, autism diagnosis. So I'm going to handball to you, mm. uh, Priscilla, about this. The proper names of Cleo's diagnosis would be childhood apraxia of speech and autism spectrum disorder, probably level one 
but there are two criteria that make up the diagnosis and you get levels for each of them. So you can have level one for social interaction and level two for restricted repetitive behaviors, for example. Of course, since Celia is the one relaying this information in the story, I don't expect her to be fully accurate with the names. Also, this book was published in 2013, I think. Mm. So uh, in 2013, the latest version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, the DSM, was released. So that kind of overhauled Mm. how a lot of different things were were labelled and were understood by the, the mental health world. This was sort of being written and published at a time when a lot of labels were changing. So, um, you know, we can't be. Yeah, we we can use our knowledge of um, a retrospective knowledge to comment on it, but we we won't be too harsh yeah. on the the writers or the character for no. not using twenty twenty one language. <laughs> a little bit about childhood apraxia of speech. The way this disorder is described is that. The messages from your brain to your mouth do not get through correctly. So a child with speech apraxia might not be able to move their lips or tongue in the right ways, even though they have the muscle strength to do those things. Sometimes the child might not be able to say much at all. They know what they want to say, and it's not about how they think. It's about how the brain tells the mouth muscles to move. Elective mutism is something different. First of all, elective mutism is probably an outdated term. I did a bit of Google search and Wikipedia tells me that it's not really used anymore. I've also never really heard it used in my training and career. Yeah, neither have I actually. I've heard of selective but not elective mutism. Yeah, Yeah, and elective is, I guess, probably outdated because it can be a bit problematic because it gives the impression that an individual is choosing to not speak in certain circumstances rather than being so overwhelmed with anxiety that they can't get the words out. Mm. The way Celia describes Cleo's um, circumstances, Cleo is choosing not to speak because of the apraxia, but that's not the same with selective mutism. Um, In selective mutism, as I mentioned before, the child is unable to speak and communicate effectively in select social settings like a school, but they are able to speak and communicate in settings where they are comfortable, secure, and relaxed. So it's really all about the anxiety. Interesting. Let's jump back to the main story. So Um, We've learned a little bit about Celia's backstory, but we also learn about Alice's backstory. However, once you you know that Alice isn't real, it's very unclear about whether anything that Alice says throughout the story is real at all. So, um, yeah, a bit of a disclaimer on top of what I'm about to say. We don't know if this is true or not. So um, Alice says that she has parents and an older sister. She claims that she had a younger brother, Johnny, who died because of her um, and her mum is very overcome with grief, can't bear to look at Alice or change Johnny's room, which is why Alice is in a boarding school. We learn that Johnny apparently died through drowning in a river and Alice was there and couldn't save him and actually froze um, before she went to get help. She says that she blames herself for not trying to dive down and to save Johnny when he was in the river. Alice 
discusses this and, you know, she says that she's never actually cried about it and feels nothing about it. And it seems to be that her mum sees this as a sign that maybe Alice doesn't care. What I did find interesting about this is that Alice, uh, or the murderer, tried to use this traumatic event to gain sympathy from Celia. Um, it was a bit of an early clue, I guess, that I picked up on that Alice mm-hmm. disclosed this all pretty quickly to Celia with sort of minimal prompting, uh, which made me a bit suspicious. So yeah. people often need a bit longer to feel comfortable with somebody to talk about traumatic events and often um, go years and years without talking about it and for some people never talk about it at all. So I did find it a bit unusual that this girl was disclosing that, Um, although I I kind of brushed it off to Mm -hmm. start with because I know that sometimes it can be easier to talk about hard things with people you don't know than it can be with people you do know. And I feel like it fits into Alice's persona of her being this abandoned, lonely girl who has no one to talk to and no one understands what she's gone through helps, I suppose, gain sympathy from Celia. Yeah, it's kind of that grooming behavior, isn't it? Look at my tragic backstory. You should reassure me about it. You should sympathize with me. You should tell me that actually I'm okay, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's a a bit icky when you look back at it and see how this person was sort of manipulating Celia. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I thought was really weird about Alice was how misogynistic she was. Yeah. Alice supposedly has this older sister called Tess, and she just kept slut-shaming her. These are conversations that do happen between teenagers sometimes, and, you know, not Mm -hmm. people gossip about others and say not nice things behind people's backs. But this did strike me as um, being sort of like a little bit of an outdated view. Uh, It was almost more like a mid-2000s, 90s kind of view of teenage girls. Um, Not that it was right then and it isn't right now, but I did find it a bit strange that uh, she would be saying these quite sexist things about her sister, Um, quite judgmental things. So when we know that this is most likely an older man who – doesn't seem to like women very much. Um, That attitude makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, absolutely. After missing for 14 days, Hallie Knight is found in an industrial waste disposal unit wrapped in a distinctive woven blanket. Police believe there could be links to two unsolved murders of of teenage girls who disappeared in similar circumstances. We get Hallie's statement to the police about the morning she was abducted. A man posed as her friend's father, picking her up for rowing practice. Later in the story, she shares more of her recollections of her abduction, including that she saw photos of the previous girls and photos of two other girls, and that her kidnapper told her to weave, presumably the blanket that would be used to wrap her body in, which is creepy. As the police investigation goes on, including witness interviews and a couple of red herrings or investigations that don't really go anywhere, Hallie is brought Mm. to a property that was thought to be the place that she was held hostage in. Hallie has a severe stress reaction to this and we get a note from a psychiatrist and psychotherapist saying that she has experienced acute symptoms of anxiety and is in a dissociative state suffering from acute post-traumatic stress disorder. 
she's admitted to hospital and will remain there until she's stable and her psychiatrist advises against further questioning as re-exposure would be detrimental to her well-being. So let's have a little bit of a chat about PTSD. So we have uh, covered this before in previous episodes, but for new listeners, let's just give a really brief overview. PTSD is a mental health disorder that begins after a traumatic event. It is short for post-traumatic stress disorder. A person's brain struggles to process memories the way that it normally would, and trauma impacts on how people see the world and themselves. Hmm. In this book, potentially it's too soon to be diagnosed with PTSD. A more appropriate diagnosis would be acute stress disorder at this stage. I can't remember the exact timing that was in the book, but um, I think yeah, technically it doesn't become PTSD until I think a month after a traumatic event. But yeah, acute stress disorder is very, very similar to PTSD, um, but it's just uh, mm. there's, a, there's a few minor differences, but it's, it just happens a bit sooner after the traumatic event and is considered to be a bit of a precursor to PTSD. Um, and if yeah. people experience acute stress disorder, there is a, a chance that they might recover on their own or that they might, they might go on to develop more longer-term PTSD. Hallie's response does seem to be aligned with the criteria of these diagnoses, although we don't really get full insight into her mind. It's all through kind of transcripts and what other people say and interpret. So Hallie's described um, in not very nice terminology as going mental after she was taken to the shack in Bendigo, um, that she can't do anything like feed herself or brush her own hair or even answer questions. Apparently she's really weak and keeps having all these nightmares and she wakes screaming and screaming, although she's sedated. So uh, I think that gives a bit of a window into how awful this trauma response can be and how much it can impact on you, uh, just your, your kind of functioning day to day. The psychiatrist letter that we get also talks about Hallie being in a dissociative state. Dissociation is a mental process where a person disconnects from their thoughts, feelings, memories, or sense of identity. There are a lot of symptoms and can include feeling disconnected from reality or from yourself, uh, memory lapses, and feeling as though the world isn't real or is distorted in some way. And dissociation is another way that the brain tries to, to cope with the horrible aftermath of a traumatic event. So um, those really intense memories that can come back through flashbacks and the really um, difficult impact that PTSD can have on your body as well and how anxious you can be feeling um, and how stressed you can be feeling. So, yeah, it's a, it's a way of coping. We also learn in mm. that psychiatrist note about the types of treatment that Hallie might be receiving or is likely to receive in the future. So her psychiatrist says uh, that she's recommending cognitive behavioural therapy and supportive counselling to assist Hallie to develop strategies for managing symptoms. She also mentions that Hallie is receiving regular sedation to assist with her recovery. So that implies some kind of medication. Um, Yeah, just a quick note, if this were a real psychiatrist report, it would most likely specify what type of medication not be that spe- yeah, be a bit more specific rather than just saying mm-hmm. sedation um, and to talk about you know, things like dosage yeah. and so on because that's really important to keep on a client file. They 
also mention cognitive behavioural therapy, CBT. So CBT is a real type of therapy, although personally I wouldn't use it for Halley in this kind of um, acute mm. stress state. Um, it's yeah. something that I probably want to do more down the track uh, and definitely not kind of generic CBT. There are specific types of CBT that have been developed for trauma and for helping people manage a trauma response. So that's what I'd be more likely to want to use. Um, but yeah, the first stages of trauma mm -hmm. therapy are really supposed to be more about just learning to kind of cope with day-to-day -day symptoms and flashbacks before yeah. you start kind of processing and doing more of the thought heavy yeah. kind of stuff yeah stabilization and then processing absolutely you've got to feel safe hey guys my name's abby and i co-host the book life podcast with my best friend mo we cover fantasy sci-fi and historical fiction books and talk book related topics like our favorite character types world building and books versus their movies new episodes drop every monday on your favorite platform now back to your show to the story. Alice tells Celia that she's not coping well after the news of another girl, Adeline's disappearance. Alice says she's not eating or sleeping. She bursts into tears and can't stop crying. And she's told by the counselor that she's having a delayed post-traumatic stress response because the news triggered unresolved grief about her dead brother. They also talk about the four stages of grief and about expressing her emotions through art. We, all, we know this is not real. <laughs> yeah, but still, it's still interesting. So uh, it is possible for PTSD to be delayed. So uh, it's more commonly known as, um, I think, delayed onset PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's when you when there's at least, I think, six months between the traumatic event and the onset of symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it is possible. It's not as well understood and probably not as uh, commonly diagnosed, I'd say. Yeah. But, yeah, that's, that's, that's a real thing that can mm -hmm. happen. Um, although, once again, Alice is not real and her experience is most likely not real. Yeah. So <laughs> the murderer is, again, trying to gain some kind of sympathy. Yeah, and I suppose in a way sharing that vicarious trauma as well because of the way the news about the girls' disappearances are hitting the community. It sounds like everyone's really, really quite upset, um, understandably. Everyone's very much on edge. Interesting thing here is that the text specifically says four stages of grief, uh, which seems to be referring to the Kubler-Ross model of grief, which is actually five stages of grief. So I'm not sure what happened here. Something got lost in translation, but yeah, there's a, it's a very famous model of grief um, and the text fails to mention one of those stages, which is bargaining. Mm. Uh, although this model is more for emotions experienced when somebody has a terminal illness um, and is dying as opposed to uh, people who are coping with grief after somebody has died, but it still can be applicable. And a lot of people do find it very relatable and relevant. And I would imagine that that would be certainly a thing that could come up in therapy, um, mm. talking about stages of grief. I know I've done that with my clients before as well. Yeah. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I wonder, now that I'm thinking about this, I wonder if that mistake is on purpose. Because Alice wouldn't have had that discussion with an actual counselor. Very unlikely. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, in response to... Adeline's disappearance, Celia's family goes into lockdown. So the sisters can't do certain things anymore. Later, the parents also install a deadlock and a CCTV at home. Celia describes that she's highly strung. She can't stop jiggling her leg. She's not sleeping and generally feels unsafe. She also describes that there's this atmosphere of anxiety and worry at school as well. Over time, we get more clues that Alice may not be who she says she is. So interestingly enough, um, I guessed very early that Alice wasn't real. Mm. And I'm going to pat myself on the back for that because normally I don't read a mystery and try to solve what's going on. Mm. Uh, This was almost like an accident where I picked up on a couple of things quite early and then just sort of kept looking for more clues as I went along in case I was right and I was. It was very satisfying. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, some of the clues that um, I picked up on or that the two of us have discussed that Mm. we noted. So first of all, quite early in the book during an email, Alice mentions Celia's middle name without Mm. Celia telling her first. Mm -hmm. Um, And Celia says, oh, how did you know my middle name? And Alice kind of brushes it off and says something about, oh, it's your mother's name, but doesn't actually specify how she knew that. Mm -hmm. There's a point where Alice and Celia talk on the phone, but Celia describes Alice's voice as being very quiet, Mm -hmm. which made me think that it was somebody putting on a voice or whispering so that it wasn't obvious that it wasn't a teenage girl who was speaking. (laughs) But what is even more wrong on a lot of level is that Alice calls in a bomb threat to a modeling gig that Celia was uncomfortable attending. You know, you go hard for your best friend, but not that hard. <laughs> Maybe not a bomb threat. Yeah, so unlike you, I didn't I didn't pick up early that Alice wasn't who she says she is. I just thought there was a lot of weird stuff and I thought initially that the book was not well edited. That was my fault. Sorry, editor. But in Hallie's statement about her experience with her capture, she says that under a photograph of one of the girls that she saw in the kidnapper's house, there was a line of poetry. And that's actually a line from one of Celia's poems that she sent to Alice. Yeah, so that was your aha moment. Yeah, and then after that, like everything sort of fell into place. I think you picked up on this one as well, that at one point, Alice said the name Adeline in an email before Adeline went missing or was even mentioned in the story. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) this was another early clue that um, made me think that something wasn't right. So... Alice and Celia were just talking about like things happening at the convent and 
Mm. Uh, Alice says this name she hasn't mentioned before and Celia's like, who's Adeline? And then Alice never addresses it. Yeah. And that I remembered that because I thought it was a little bit of an unusual or not very common name. And then later we learn that Ad- Adeline, Adeline? I don't know. I think it's Adeline. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we learned that she's gone missing and I'm like, oh, she's he's, something's going wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, another thing that mm, I suspect is uh, mm. a, uh, not quite right. So there's a point where yeah. Alice and Celia talk about spontaneously cutting off their hair mm-hmm. and at one point Alice posts Celia a ponytail. Yeah. Um, saying that it's her ponytail and Celia thinks this is hilarious. But I, it made me think that this might be the cut-off hair of one of the kidnapped girls. Uh, yeah, I didn't think that, but now that, that makes so much sense and also makes it so much more creepier. <laughs> I like Celia, but she's very naive sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like She thinks this is funny. That's, that's really weird behavior, especially considering Alice also called in that bomb track by the stage yeah I guess Alice was kind of portraying this personality as being a bit quirky and a bit uh, a bit out there and Celia Mm. just thought it was her being funny but it's very sinister when you look back at it I know Uh, but then we get a truly tragic event where Adeline's body is found um, wrapped once again in a distinctive woven blanket Mm. and understandably Alice Celia well not Alice I guess uh, Mm. Alice pretends to be upset Celia and the rest of the community are very very upset by this there was one thing I wanted to flag here as well that uh, at one point Alice says um, Alice is talking about how she's been struggling um, and at one point she says that she's feeling better and has her appetite back and says uh, something not so nice about people who are experiencing mm. anorexia. Yeah. Um, so she says basically, oh, you know, I was worried I, I might be anorexic, which will go against everything I stand for. Seriously, anorexics are the most tedious people ever. As somebody who has worked with people with anorexia who are lovely people who are struggling with a very serious mental health issue, um, yeah, that's a mm. not very nice thing to say. And I would like to put my hand up as saying I don't believe in that statement at all. (laughs) Um, But again, Alice, I think, has this kind of undertone of misogyny that is coming up there because we know anorexia affects um, girls and women more often than it affects boys and men. Yeah. Oh, speaking of misogyny, we do know that the killer is misogynistic at this stage because part of Hallie's statement is that I think there was a male cousin that stood with her family making statements to the TV on the news Um, and the kidnapper sort of got really angry and Hallie I think sort of clicked that he meant to ask if she wasn't a virgin anymore that's what I took from it anyway because it was never actually explained what bad apple means I wasn't sure about that. It seems like the reason Hallie wasn't murdered was because she claimed to be impure. Impure in mm. quote, quotation marks, obviously. Um, though, again, we never really got specifications about what that meant. It's just sort of implied that because Hallie might be in a relationship with this guy, the killer didn't think that she was 
I don't know, worth killing? That seems strange. Mm. Was she poisoned as well, cyanide, when she was found? It seemed like she was drugged, but not to the point where she was, she would die. Mm. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, your interpretation does make a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> like I wasn't, I didn't really assume that the murderer had intentionally let her live. That could be true as well. I just thought it was interesting that he, I mean, he was killing girls, so he was obviously not a fan of women. Um, but then there was that added layer of being really judgy about someone, which Alice was doing with tests as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of the sort of frustrating things about this book is that we don't get a lot of answers about things like who mm. who exactly did it and what exactly was their motivation. We're left to make a lot of assumptions. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, so we are quite close to the end of the story. Mm -hmm. So one day uh, Celia and Cleo come home to find your next CB chalked on their driveway and understandably this freaks Celia out. And a few days later they find out that someone had used Cleo's camera to take photos of Cleo and Celia sleeping through their bedroom windows. We eventually learn that this was Celia's old friends messing with her. I didn't really know what to think about this. Um, it was a pretty cool thing for them to do, but yeah. I wondered if maybe it wasn't that simple. I don't know. Yeah, we don't know a lot about um, – we know that the twins didn't like Celia anymore because she moved schools. I don't know. I guess teenage girls can be cruel sometimes, but this is excessive. Yeah, an extra level of cruel. Yeah, uh, especially considering what's going on in the community. And, you know, by this point as well, there's been somebody arrested for the murder who is looking more and more like he is the murder mm-hmm. murderer as well, Rodney Weaver, so somebody who works at both the schools where the girls yeah. were kidnapped. You know, something's not right, but we, we don't get full answers um, mm-hmm. about whether it was actually him or someone affiliated with him. Yeah. But I did. it did make me go, hmm, when I saw that his last name was Weaver, considering... <laughs> yeah <laughs> the fact that this blanket the the weaving of the blankets is such a key thing within the story I did not pick that up but I laughed so much when you pointed that out to me I don't know having a villain um who stabs who stabs people and calling them like Vincent McKnife or something <laughs> <laughs> once Rodney's been arrested there's this sense of relief from Celia and she and Alice make, make plans to meet at Camberwell Market. Alice tells Celia that her dad will pick Celia up. And here's the big twist. Celia goes missing. Mm. Mm. Alice never existed. Well, I don't know why I said that so dramatically. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> but for a lot of people reading this for the first time, that was a very dramatic uh, it was. news report at the end of this book. The cocoon killer has been using anagrams of the girls they targeted to befriend them. So Alice was most, almost certainly the cocoon killer. And it looks like Hallie was targeted with uh, a name Leela. Um, yeah. Adeline was targeted with the name Danielle. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of anagrams that are presented at the end. Yeah. Um, tape to the accused desk which makes me think that it was Rodney Weaver's desk yeah that makes sense we don't actually know it doesn't explicitly say it was Rodney Weaver Mm. um 
if it was, he was very brazen to kidnap another girl as he was being yeah. very closely <laughs> investigated. So that made me think maybe it wasn't actually him. Yeah, I know. I think one of the more brazen aspects of this as well is that this person met Celia's dad. Alice's fake dad had mm. a conversation with somebody in Celia's family yeah. to organize picking up to go to the marketplace. Um, mm. So they clearly thought that, you know, he was real and genuine. I feel like he, this, you know, Alice's dad actually got out of the car, said hello to Celia's dad, and then drove away with Celia. It doesn't specifically say that, but uh, okay. in the news report at the end, mm -hmm. it describes what the man looks like. So police are looking for a tall man in his early 50s with brown hair and a dark complexion driving a tan BMW. He is calm, polite, and well-spoken. Mm -hmm. So that would imply that someone in Celia's family did see him. Yeah. Yeah. I did really enjoy how the tension sort of ratcheted up for me. Because, you know, I figured out that Alice wasn't real. And then as they were making plans to meet, I was going like, oh, my God, no. Yeah, don't go there. Alice said something like, oh, you know, uh, change of plans. It'll have to be my dad who picks you up because of whatever reason. I'm like, no, <laughs> don't do it. Don't get in the car, Celia. Yeah. I have very mixed opinions about this ending. On one hand, I thought it was a, a great build up to that plot twist. But then I suppose as a reader, I really expect a resolution. That never happened. Yes. It just ended. We don't know what happens to Celia, what happens to Alice. Yeah, and we just sort of yeah. left in that mystery. Like it shocks you, but there's something kind of unsatisfying about it. I'm used to mysteries and crime stories where the novel doesn't end with yeah. A new crime, <laughs> like yeah. it ends with you actually learning um, about the mystery and learning mm. like the why. Yeah. There was a part of me that wanted just a little bit more. I think if it was more neatly wrapped up, I wouldn't be thinking about this book as much. And I feel like that makes this book memorable. Yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. In a way, it does mirror what happens in real life. Like a lot of crimes do go unexplained and unsolved. Yeah, that's true. That wraps up the story for us. So let's talk a little bit more about our favorite moments and give our overall ratings. Priscilla, what were your favorite moments? Um, I don't have a specific moment, but I really enjoy the breadcrumbs of the mystery. Well, I suppose there is a moment. The moment how you referred to Celia's poem, it was like a light bulb moment for me. And I really like, as I mentioned before, that the tension was built up really well towards the end. What about you, Elise? Even though I, I still do have kind of mixed feelings about it, mm. um, the moment that still stands out to me the most is the ending as such a big aha moment. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that was the satisfaction of actually correctly guessing the twist really yeah. early on. Other aspects that I did like included sort of the overall format. I, I liked the sort of the way that the emails were broken up with um, the newspaper reports, the witness mm. interview transcripts, um, even like a forensic toxicology report at yeah. some point. <laughs> yeah, I just thought those were really quite interesting to read. Star rating, what would you give this one out of five? Oh, I gave this one three and a half stars. 
I really still don't quite know how I feel about this book. And I read it really quickly because I was sucked in after a few pages. And I do appreciate that ending in a way. Yeah. But I'm still also dissatisfied as a reader. I want I want us to know who Alice is and their motivation as well. What about you? What's your star rating for this book? Um, I gave it three stars. Uh, I thought it was quite interesting and, you know, I agree with what you said about um, it being, you know, quite a, a page turner. It sucked mm-hmm. me in as well. Maybe if I hadn't predicted the ending, I would have been a bit more shocked, I think, because I would have probably had more of an emotional investment mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah. Uh, because I picked up on the clues quite early and kept an eye out for that it may have in a way ruined the rest of the book for me because um, I knew one of the characters probably wasn't real. So <laughs> I, it didn't have that shock value for me at the end, mm-hmm. although it was kind of fun to read it and to be able to pick up more clues along the way. In terms of the mental health representation, it probably wasn't as fleshed out as I would have liked. Uh, tricky in this format, I guess, but mm-hmm. you know, we, we picked up on a few inaccuracies Um and, you know, we mostly focused on things like how labels and stuff has changed, but I did feel that, you know, there were a few instances of like stigmatizing language that weren't really challenged, yeah. um, which I would have liked. Mm-hmm. And a few other things where I just would have liked the impacts to be fleshed out a little bit more from a mental health perspective. And I feel like the overarching message of this book is essentially like don't trust strangers on the internet because they could be a mm. murderer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's a valid message. I know things happen. I know catfishing is a thing and I know there are lots of horror stories and big like warnings about this. But, you know, in reality, like most people on the internet are just people with yeah. normal levels of flaws and <laughs> It is possible to make friends online who aren't trying to catfish you or murder you. Mm. I have myself. Um, don't tell my parents. They'd probably be horrified <laughs> by this, even though it's been a long time since yeah. I was a teenager. Um, but, you know, I'm still alive. Uh, but, you know, I, I agree. Like, you have to be wary. Um, mm. You have to make assumptions that, you know, you don't know who you're, you're talking to on the yeah. other end. And maybe if Celia had better internet literacy and was maybe a little less trusting maybe she would have picked up on the clues not to blame her because this is entirely the fault of this killer yeah Um, I don't want a victim blame no I know what you mean I also made friends online when I was a teenager uh shout out to Carissa but yeah I think it's very hard to get this message across without being is condescending the right word yeah, yeah, I think it is. Um, yeah. Especially when so much of our lives are just online these days. I mean, this was written um, nearly 10 years ago now, so things have changed and how we use social media has changed. And yeah. if this was happening now, the conversation probably wouldn't be happening via email. It would be happening <laughs> probably through social media. So I feel like um, these days the message around internet safety has to be a bit more nuanced than what it was 10 years ago or so. Absolutely. Um, the internet is not evil. It's just a tool that we have for communication and sharing information. So you just got to learn how to use it in a way that's safe rather than just saying, don't ever talk to a stranger on the internet because 
you know, life hacks, strangers in real life can be awful too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and strangers on the internet can be wonderful. Very true as well. Now we'll quickly talk about some recommended reading. We always put up a blog post to accompany our episodes. Um, so when the blog post for this episode goes up, we'll make sure to include some more information about trauma and PTSD. And we'll also include some information about coping with tragedies or traumatic events that happen in your community and ways to cope with that. We will also recommend other fiction novels, especially one of our favorites, Small Spaces by Sarah Epstein. Uh, we did a review episode on this, so please check that out if you're interested. And also, if you want more young adult thrillers, particularly Australian YA, uh, check out the recommendations in our Small Spaces blog posts. And if you're interested in something in a similar format, um, another interesting uh, book, which is kind of a thriller slash sci-fi, um, The Illuminae. Chronicles by Jay Christoph and Amy Kaufman, um, mm -hmm. a really interesting and told um, through a series of transcripts and messages and other interesting things. Yeah. And another book that sprung to mind um, that I didn't note down but I just remembered <laughs> is Letters from the Inside by John Marsden. Um, mm -hmm. So this book was actually released in 1991. It's a bit older than I thought it was because I read it in high school. Mm. Um, but, yeah, another book that's um, predominantly letters between two teenage girls uh, with a few twists and turns along the way. So if you are up to some classic Australian young adult fiction, that might be an interesting one to check out as well. Yeah, and I suppose this is – I don't know if you can call it a recommendation because we haven't read this book yet at this stage, but we – recently went to the launch of The Gaps by Leanne Hall. And from what we can gather from the summary, that book also deals with the trauma of missing girls in a community. Yeah, by the time this episode actually goes up, I suspect we will have read it. We just haven't had time yet. Look, I suspect we're going to love it because the reviews have been really positive so far. Something else that our blog post is likely to include is voices from lived experience. So we always think it's important to include some perspectives from people with lived experience as well as, you know, luckily for us, we haven't been through these personal experiences. We'll link to some information about Elizabeth Smart, who is an American woman who survived a kidnapping and has become a child safety activist. Mm -hmm. um, her story is quite interesting. We think some of our listeners might be interested in learning more about her. We might also be learning about Natasha Kempush, I'm sorry if I've said her name wrong, who's another survival of child kidnapping. She actually wrote a biography, which I think was turned into a movie as well, which is quite um, an interesting and sad tale about what her experience was like when she was kidnapped um, as a child too and what life has been right. like for her since. And I think that's the end of this episode for us. Yeah. If you want to learn more about the book or access relevant resources, check out our website, novelfeelings.com. We post an episode summary and links to further reading for each episode. You can also visit our mental health resources page to learn more about getting support for yourself or somebody you care about or to learn more about mental health in general. If you like us, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you want to ask us a question or just to chat, you can message us via our website or social media. So at the moment, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Goodreads. You can find us on any of those platforms at novel underscore feelings. You can also find me online. My bookish Instagram is at pave with books with an extra S. Thank you so much for listening to our review of Cry Blue Murder. We hope you found it interesting. Yeah, stay safe. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Don't get kidnapped. Don't trust anybody who messages you with an anagram of your name. <laughs>